Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855kHz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness and ha- rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling, and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery experience and show us that shared experience saves lives. Today, my guest is a member of Alaron Family Groups, and she'll be talking about living with the effects of someone else's alcoholism and how Alaron helped her cope. So, Helen, uh, welcome to 3CR Studio. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, It's good to have um, a friend on. (laughs) (laughs) I've known Helen for some time in Alaron, and it's good to to be able to have a chat on radio. Um, So do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, you know, what life was like growing up and what family life was like and um, how things went at school and with your friends? Right. Um, gee, there's a lot there. I, um, I'm the youngest of six kids. Uh, I grew up in a, uh, a house that was full of chaos. Um, both my parents were daily drinkers. Um, life was just very busy as kids. There was uh, always parties in the house. There was always guests and, and visitors and friends there. There was uh, lots of functions, lots of food, um, but lots and lots and lots of alcohol. I don't remember any function where there wasn't copious amounts of alcohol consumed. Even us kids, our, you know, our birthday parties as little kids were held in the special room at the pub. Oh, okay. um, no McDonald's for us. Um, yeah, so so life was just pretty crazy. Um, I I think I um, I don't yeah I don't remember any function that wasn't pretty full on with lots of people and, and lots of yeah, alcohol. Yeah. So where do you fit in the in the family sequence? I'm the youngest. I'm the yep. youngest by a big chunk. Uh, there's quite a significant age difference between me and my eldest brother. Um, so they were all sort of teenagers, four boys and then two girls. They were all sort of teenagers when I was really little. And uh, I idolised my brothers. Uh, doesn't mean they didn't tease me and use me as <laughs> entertainment value. But uh, yes, and I still I still idolise them in, in a way. But, um yeah. Yeah. So it was yep. pretty busy. Yeah. So tell us a bit about your mum and dad then. So mum and dad. Um, dad always owned his own business, which was very convenient for an alcoholic because at um, <laughs> eleven o'clock you had to go and check the mail. Um, somehow the mail ended up at the pub. I don't know, but um, and uh, so he always had his own businesses, different things from motor mechanics to concreting companies and pest controls and things. Uh, mum was a stay-at-home mum, but she also worked, took in things like ironing and house cleaning and that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, life, life was pretty good in terms of there was always good food in the house. We always sort of, uh, got the things we needed, uh, lots of hand-me-down things, you know, lots of hand-me-down clothes. There was never much money. Mum, you knew how to stretch money a mile to feed us kids. And my uncle lived with us as well. So there was, you know, eight of us in the, oh, what's that? Six, nine of us in the house really. Wow. Um, and it was a little house. Yeah. So, uh. Yeah, it was all a bit. It was all a bit crazy. Yeah. So, was there any drinking in your in-laws? Uh, yes, uh, everywhere. I think my my parents chose to socialise with people who drank like them. My mum came from a very large family, and most of her brothers and sisters lived locally. They all drank the same way. Um, they always had friends who drank the same way they did. 
Um, so, yeah, it was not unusual. I don't remember having anybody in the house who said, no, I don't want to drink, I want a cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, there was just, and it wasn't just drinking, it was drinking to excess. There yes. was no such yeah. thing as just having a few beers. Yeah. Um, we used to have a, uh, the bottle I used to come to our house. Mm. And I didn't realise that he didn't come to everybody else's house at least once a month. He used to go to their house once a year. We used to have this stack that used to head up inside the garage. It was our job to put it into the crates before the bottle man came. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of alcohol consumed. And, and for all of us kids' birthday, you know, significant birthdays, they used to order kegs, you know, two, yeah, or, two yeah. or so kegs. And that was kind of pretty standard. But um, And there might have been a couple of those lolly drinks for somebody else, but there was just lots of alcohol, lots of fun. Um, but, you know, it became pretty stressful for me as I was a, a little kid. Yeah. Was there many arguments? Oh, yeah. And there was yeah. nearly always a physical fight too. Yeah. Not usually between my parents. It was usually my brothers. Um, my brothers were pretty fiery teenagers and um, were known by the local constabulary quite well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they, yeah, they were, they were um, a bit rambunctious, you could say, as yeah. kids. Um, so there was often a little bit of fight, always fueled by alcohol. I don't remember them ever having an argument when they were sober. Yeah, and my parents you know, used to say them all out the backyard and sort it out. You know, that was how they sort of said. Yep. And my my brothers were pretty much out of control in their teenage years, and my dad, I don't think, knew how to control them really. Um, you know, one brother wagged school for three months solid. Uh, they'd buy clapped out cars and ride them around the bushes at the back. And you know, my eldest brother used to, the second eldest brother used to have me break into houses with him to get presents for the other family members. When my brother got married, my eldest brother got married. I was only, God, not even ten. Yeah, break into a holiday house down the road and get some sheets and towels and wrap them up and give it to him for a present. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing that happened. Yeah, and, and education. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So when did you realise that your family was a little bit different? Um, I guess I had uh, friends growing up, a couple of whom had parents like mine and became friends with my parents. But um, I also realised that there were, um, yeah, other households felt different to ours. There was a calmness there. There was a... Um, a serenity, I guess, that we just didn't have in our house. Um, and, yeah, other kids were often attracted to our house. It was party house at my place. And mum mum and dad were quite happy for us to have parties at home because they knew where we are, where, where we were. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what age I was. I, I think I was probably under 10 when I realised that something wasn't quite right. Um, and mum and dad had told me that I was a mistake. They did it in a sort of mm. laughing manner, but... I took that fairly seriously, and when I figured out that something wasn't right and I was a mistake, then two and two put together, it was probably my fault. So um, I'd kind of just fix it. I'd yeah. fix the problem, and I'd make sure that I wasn't in the way, and I didn't cause them any extra stress. So I became the perfect child. I was did very well at school. I did very well at athletics. I did everything my parents wanted me to do. Um, and back then, I would have, I would have subconsciously been looking for their affection and their approval. I know now that they absolutely adored me. They weren't that good at showing it in the way that I wanted. But, um, yeah, as a little kid, you just want to be loved and approved of. And I think our house was a bit too busy for them to worry about me. Yeah. By the time I came along, yeah. they sort of had their hands full as it was, you know, looking after four, you know, pretty boisterous boys. And, and uh, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was pretty hard. Right. So did, you, did it affect you? Were you anxious about what was going to happen? Yeah, I, one of my earliest rem- memories is is lying awake at night just worrying and worrying about everything, worrying about what was going to happen at school the next day, worrying about what was going to happen with mum and dad, worrying about what was going to happen with my sister. I became pretty uh, connected to my sister and looked after her quite a bit. And um, yeah, I just I just constantly worried and and even about 
little things. And I can still do a bit of that today. I think that was something I learned at a very young age. I, I think the worrying I thought would somehow protect me, that I'd I'd figure it out. I'd just be able to mentally figure it out somehow. So if I went through every possible scenario, somehow I'd come up with some solution that would make me feel better. But I remember being quite anxious as a kid. Yeah. And photos of me, you can see, I just look terrified. I look absolutely terrified. <laughs> you see all these other kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, closed down sort of posture and looking terrified. So. Yeah. Yeah. so what sort of things did your parents do that caused you that? Anxiety. Oh, it was it was probably just the unpredictable nature of things. Um, you know, like I said, there was always food on the table, but um, you know, mum and dad would forget to come to school events and significant things that happened for me as a kid. They just weren't there, and uh, you know, they'd tell me the school would make a mistake or you know that sort of stuff. My brothers were really good at taking me places I needed to go and get me places. I was pretty athletic as a kid, and I was you know in athletics. So my brothers would take me rather than my parents. I just couldn't really be relied on to do that, and. Um, and just the, the emotional stuff as well, you know, they, um, we had a lot of tragedy happening in our family when I was a little kid and, and mum and dad just never talked about it. They just wouldn't talk mm. about it. I think they didn't know how to cope with it themselves. My uh, One of my brothers got cancer when he was 18. I was only really little. And, um, and then he had to have his leg amputated and then he died when he was 21 at home. And nobody spoke about that. It's very traumatic. Nobody yeah. spoke about it. Yeah. And as soon as my brother died, mum and dad went on a holiday and I got shipped off to my least favourite auntie who also didn't talk about it. Yeah. I was kept home from school for a week. I don't know why. Um, and nobody talked about it. Like you just, it just didn't happen. So it was that kind of stuff that used to really bother me that I, I didn't feel like I could talk to them about uh, any emotional thing. My, my, I mean, my mum had a, a pretty horrendous childhood and um, a very hard childhood. And I don't think she had room for emotion. And whenever I, I'd say something like, oh, I feel sad, she'd say, no, you don't. And I'd go, oh, okay, maybe I don't. Uh, I don't know, you know. And and being angry was a really bad thing. You couldn't get angry. Mm. And because I wanted their approval so much, I'd just shut down my emotions, anything negative. And I would have said to you there was only, you know, two or three emotions on the scale because I yeah. didn't really know of any others. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, there just, just didn't seem to be much space for for anything other than the functions of life. You know, you've just got to do what you've got to do and then get on with it. And, yeah, and if you've in. got food in, on the table and you've got a clean set of clothes on, you've got nothing to complain about. And, and that's what they would say to me later in life, you know. Um, don't know what you're on about. Yeah. Stop, yeah. Stop whinging. That's right. <laughs> so did anything change as you sort of got older and got to high school and things like that? Yeah, certainly not for my parents. Their drinking mm. continued, in fact, got worse. Um, their health got worse. Um, their financial system got worse. Everything for them got worse. Um, for me, no, nothing really changed. It, it looked different on the outside, but on the inside it didn't. It probably got worse, if anything. I I continued to make decisions that I thought would be best for other people. Um, I chose relationships, jobs, everything I, um, based on what I thought my parents would want for me. Um, and I became very disconnected with myself about who I was and what I wanted and, and, um, and just went through this process of making decisions thinking that that was the right thing to do um mm. but yeah and and on the outside i think part of my life probably looked pretty good i did reasonably well at school and um you know got good jobs and uh was working from a fairly young age when even when i was studying and stuff and but yeah the inside of my head was not a great place to be uh, because i'd spent so much time focusing on trying to make other people happy and that was my job i thought um, yeah, kind of lost me along the way. Right. Did you ever turn to alcohol yourself? 
Oh, look, as you know, teenagers, we all did the things we did. I had a bunch of girlfriends who I'm still mates with now, um, who we went to primary school together and we'd all go out. We'd always have a designated driver. We did some silly things. There's no doubt about that. We often kind of joke about it now and say, crikey, we're lucky that bad <laughs> things didn't that. happen exactly right. Um, but no, it never really did anything for me. You know, I think there's a, there's a, um, you know, some people kind of chase the effect of alcohol. I've sort of listened to um, AA members nowadays and listened to what they um, seek in alcohol. Um, but no, I didn't ever like that out of control feeling. Um, my parents were very happy if I, uh, f- happy for me to drink. In fact, they offered us alcohol at a very young age. Um, they didn't see any problem with it. Um, uh, I think I got really drunk for the first time when I was about 11. <laughs> uh, my brothers were playing barman at a, uh, at a, a function of a, my actually sister-in-law's mother's place. And they thought it was hilarious to get me drunk. Uh, I hated it. Um, so my mum used to make her own homemade liqueurs. So she used to make me liqueurs and stuff in my early teenage years and, and thought that was pretty good. So it was Being great. Good, that, yeah. yeah. And they were good. They <laughs> were really good too. So yeah. So we certainly, you know, had our fair share of nights out where we, we drank too much and did all that kind of stuff. But, um, but no, it didn't, it didn't ever really appeal to me. It wasn't something that I really, um, Seeing the effect in others, I think it's it's really it's really stopped me drinking. I knew when I'd had a bit, and I didn't want to go where they went. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Look, I I think I'm a self-confessed control freak, so losing that ability to be able to speak clearly and walk clearly was not something that was very attractive to me. And it's it's you're right. Watching somebody who's really drunk, it's not pretty. No, no, no. no. So, did you need to be loved? Oh, I think so. I think all kids need to be yeah. loved. And I think in a household that was so busy, um, I felt like there wasn't enough to go around. And I don't think I was a very needy kid at all. I think I was exactly the opposite. I was the kid who was kind of um, trying to please everybody and be either the, 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 the joker or the worker or the fixer or whatever. But um, but yeah, I think I think all kids needed to be loved. And I, I think I wanted that from my parents more than anything. And especially because I felt like uh, somehow I was not planned I was not chosen they didn't kind of sit down one night and say we'd really love to have another girl and we'd yep. really love to give her lots of love because <laughs> um, that didn't happen I think I felt like I was kind of you know a few steps behind everybody else yeah, yeah I was in the way I yeah. can, that's a pretty good way to describe yeah. it and yeah. and my brothers were you know um, uh, I think they thought I was in the way too sometimes I mean I love them and they love me I know that but um, yeah yeah I was just a little annoying thing what what's this little annoying thing that's here yeah. So, um, when did your issues start surfacing? Oh well, I think they started in my as a little kid with that anxiousness, and mm. and my decision making was certainly affected. But uh, I was in sort of my mid to late twenties when I realised that um, you know the outside of my life looked good, but the inside didn't. And I, I think I'd learnt to disconnect from most things that I felt. Um, for a certain amount, but you can only do that for so long before the yeah. you can't Explode. hold. That's yeah. right. That yeah. top of that can's going to come off, and uh, and it did for me. I, I think the outside of my world looked good. I had the job. I had the house. I um, uh, I was reasonably successful, but um, uh, it didn't matter. Those things didn't matter. I just I just didn't feel really good inside. And um, the impetus for me came when. Um, I had been, uh, I was, my corporate job, part of my corporate job was to um, develop a employee assistance program 
And I went to see a psychologist who was recommended to me who did employee assistance programs. And uh, she said, I'll, I'll take you through a, a session I'd normally do with somebody and see, you know, so you can see what I do. And she started asking me about my life and my childhood and my family life. And, of course, I painted a very rosy picture for her. And uh, very close, very close. And I hadn't told anybody. My par- my, some of my friends growing up knew my parents drank. They all knew my parents drank. Um, but they didn't understand what, why that had anything to do with me. Didn't understand alcoholism. Yeah. Didn't understand. That's right. That's yeah. right. They, they've got the drinking problem, not you. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I met that woman. And then um, not long after that, I part of my corporate job was to take uh, senior managers away on different retreats. We always do these things. And, and this particular retreat was uh, the facilitator was a psychologist. And he talked about all the different roles we have in our life. And he picked me out of 40 managers and said, Helen, come up here and write on the board all the different roles you have in, in your life. And I thought that was pretty easy because I could wear a thousand hats. Whatever you wanted everything. me to be. Yeah. Oh, whatever you wanted yeah. me to be, I could be. So I started writing up all these roles that I was a coach and I was a manager and I was a, you know, um, an auntie and a sister and a whatever. And he said, okay, that's enough. Um, and he said, of all those things up there, which one's really you? And I truly had no idea. I felt, I felt something I'd never felt before. It was just absolute. The void. Yeah. It was. There was nothing there. Absolutely <laughs> nothing there. I physically felt something inside of me snap. It was a hard thing to describe, but it just felt sna- like something snapped. And I don't remember the next two days. I apparently went through that conference. I even gave a great thank you speech at the end and told everybody to safe, take a safe trip home. I don't remember how I got home. And my housemate found me the next day in the fetal position saying, I can't do this anymore. Um, and I went back and saw that psychologist <laughs> and she said, you want to tell me about your family now? Because <laughs> she knew, she could tell. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think there are some amazing professionals now who can um, determine those people who have been affected by substance abuse and who have grown up in a, in a family where there's that stuff going on. So, I mean, I, you know, I talk about um, abuse, but there was no physical abuse in our family. There was no sexual abuse. There was mm. no... Uh, it doesn't minimise it, and that's what she encouraged me to, to talk about, that um, just because those really bad things didn't happen to me didn't mean that it was all rosy. But, um, yeah, I certainly consider myself pretty lucky considering. But So, yeah, that's where the sort of um, – that's where the, the, you know, really came to an end for me. And, but and I, at the time for a control freak and somebody who was <laughs> fixing everybody else's life, that would have been the worst thing in the world. Oh, my yeah. God. Everybody can see the insides. That's yeah. it. You know, you, you can't cope. What, what are we going to do? But it was the best thing. It was yeah. really the best thing for me. It brought me to my knees and made me really have a serious look at my life and, um, and the part that I played in it, not the part everybody else played in it. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was time for me to kind of focus on me from then on. Um, and recognise the issue that I had and, and get help with it. And and um, just prior to, to meeting this woman, I'd uh, met another woman at Tai Chi classes because I was doing Tai Chi classes because I was stressed. Stressed. Strange. <laughs> That's right. I tried all sorts of stress management situations. And uh, she was a member of AA. Um, and she talked to me about Eleanor and she actually um, – and mm. I did actually tell her about my parents drinking. And she took me to my first Eleanor meeting. Um, and it was in a church – uh, there was a lot of people there who were a lot older than me. Um, they talked about things I didn't understand. God was written on the wall, which I'd given up on God, and um, I couldn't wait to get out of there. But after all that happened and I went back and saw that psychologist, um, 
she again encouraged me to go back and, and do the 12 step thing and I found myself back at an Al-Anon meeting on a Sunday morning in Hampton and it was the best thing I ever did I just cried the whole time and I hadn't cried that way for years and years mm. um, but you know somebody a stranger's hand put on my shoulder and uh, the tissue box came back and I felt more connected to those people than people I'd known all my life yeah it's strange um, isn't it yeah because they yeah. knew they really knew. knew how you felt yeah yeah. My friends knew the facts, but they didn't know the feelings that went with it. They didn't mm. understand mm. Um, how alcoholism is a family disease, how you don't have to have a substance abuse yourself to be tremendously affected by these people, these mm. people who I absolutely adored. So, um, mm. Okay, well, listen, we might take a break. You don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR. 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our previous shows, we have over 105 episodes available as podcasts on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash living free. If you want to contact us, you can call us via 3CR on 9419 8377, email us at 3crlivingfree at gmail.com or via Twitter as 3CR I'm talking with Helen. That's getting a bit windy in the studio for some reason. <laughs> not sure why. I'm not sure if you can hear it. Um... And she's talking about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. So, Helen, we were talking about getting to the point of breakdown um, and going to Al-Anon, but I understand you knew about Al-Anon before that. So what was, yeah. what was it like coming in a second time, you know, once mm. you sort of discarded it, mm. going, no, can't help mm. me, then going mm. back. Mm. So what's the difference? Yeah, I think... Uh, they say you're ready when you're ready. Yep. Um, I don't know that I was really ready the first time. I don't know that I was ready to accept that my life was unmanageable. And we talk about that with the 12 steps. It's one of the first steps is accepting that our life was unmanageable because on the outside it looked fine. And, you know, I think that's what I focused on. The outside was more important than the inside. So, yeah, I don't think I was, I was ready to do the work to really have a good, honest look at myself. I think I also, because I love my parents so much and they were really good people. They they were real pillars of the community. My dad was always giving the local guys a job and mum was always doing care packages for people who needed it. Um, that I thought that there was some uh, need for me to be angry with my parents or hate them or whatever and to really admit that they had a problem with alcohol and to admit that to anybody else. I think I I thought there was some sense of shame there. So, so yeah, I don't think I was I was ready for that. Um, but after speaking with this psychologist especially and this uh, friend who was an AA member, um, I learnt that it's not about that at all. It's actually not about the alcoholic at all. You know, Al-Anon's about, it's about me. It's about my life. It's about me finding tools and uh, methods of getting my life uh, in shape and, and having people around me who understand that. Yeah. So you what know? sort of things did you tried to do to stop your parents oh, or to man. control it? I, what didn't I try? <laughs> uh, you know, as a little kid, I tried the tipping it down the sink. They got angry about that. Um, <laughs> Surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hiding it, um, trying to divert them, trying to distract them, come and do this, come and do this, um, begging them, uh, pleading with them, doing the manipulation stuff. Um, none of it made any difference. Not one bit of difference. Um, 
someone actually asked me that once and I, and I was convinced that all that stuff that I'd done had made some difference. In some cases, it probably encouraged them to drink more, that they went out of, you know, you yeah. can't control me, I'm going to do yeah, whatever I want. Yeah. Dig the heels in. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> drink. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, no, it didn't make any difference at all. My mum my always had a drink in front of her by 12 o'clock. And if she didn't, it was a really bad thing. You know, it was, mm. she, she, but she would organise her world around the fact that she had a drink in front of her by 12 o'clock. Mm. And dad was drinking well before that every day. Mm. So what sort of things changed in your life once you started to practice some of the tools? Oh, yeah. The, 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 the biggest thing and the first thing, I think, was about separating my life from my parents' life. Because I'd gotten into a, a habit of fixing problems in their life. So my dad got into financial trouble, so I'd pay his bills and uh, he started having minor car accidents in the car, so I'd be doing insurance claims and I used to do his books for his business and he'd be writing out checks to cash to the pub and all sorts of things. <laughs> and I'd be learning how to write that up so it wasn't cash and doing all that kind of stuff. So I was very intertwined in my parents' life that I started to draw a line between them and me. Uh, I lived in the city and they lived on the peninsula and... and um, Whenever there was a problem, I'd just jump on that white horse and run down there and fix it. And the first time I remember choosing not to, I'd heard Alan on members talk about, um, you know, trying to provide some distance and detachment. This detachment thing was a foreign idea to me. Yeah. I thought that meant you didn't love them, but it's exactly the opposite. You love them enough to let them do what they need to do and, and you need to get on with your life. And mum rang and said, um, yes, well, we can't afford to keep our health insurance going, so we're going to get out of health insurance. And that's normally a trigger for me to say, don't be ridiculous, I'll pay it. And uh, I didn't know what to say. I couldn't say anything. So I just clenched my teeth really tightly and said, mm-hmm. And uh, I think mum thought I didn't hear her. So she told me again, oh, yeah, so it's going to be really bad. You know, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to not have in, uh, health insurance. And again, I just sort of, you know, really clenched my teeth and said, mm-hmm. And uh, couldn't wait to get off the phone. And that was really hard for me to do. I then started stressing about it. I thought I was going to ring them back and say, I'll go and pay it and whatever, and I just let it go. They didn't cancel the health insurance. Um, you know, they find a way. Yeah, they always but do. Yeah. They always do. That's right. So, you know, it started a, a full, very small step for me, but I started to do that. I started to, to put a bit of distance between me and my family. I didn't always go to family functions, which was really odd. And, and yeah. for us to not show up to a family function, there was something really bad. And uh, started to, yeah, just be a bit more selective about what I involved my family in because I just couldn't stand the pain anymore. I, I, I had my eyes open now. Yeah. So it was hard <clears throat> to watch. Um, yeah, it's very hard to watch somebody kill themselves with alcohol. It's very hard. Yeah. It's very hard to watch Ruin anybody make decisions yeah. that, you know, are harmful for them. Yeah. And just stand by. And, and up until then, I think I hadn't been standing by. I'd been involved. And now if I'd chosen to, to not get involved... Um, watching was really hard. I, I had to. I learnt to respect their decision. I didn't have to like it, yeah. but I did have to respect it. They had every right to make their decisions, just as I did. Mm. Um, I started going to sessions at the Pine Lodge Hospital. There was a guy there by the name of Don Bradshaw who used to run these sessions for the for the, um, re, uh, the for the people who were booked in at rehab. The what are they called? The clients of the yeah. rehab patients and he used to run sessions information sessions at night for the families and he used to have an Al-Anon speaker and many years later I became that Al-Anon speaker which I was very happy to do and he talked about the family disease and he talked about the separation between the two and how to identify the alcoholic as separate from the person and that was absolutely invaluable to me and he talked about the disease concept that alcoholics were no difference to diabetics or anybody who had cancer and I had a brother who died of cancer so I understood he didn't choose it yeah and my parents didn't either so that helped me a lot. 
um, and started to see them as just, you know, my dad I think was just a terrified guy who really didn't know how to cope with the world and that was how he how he coped. Mm. And mum the same, you know, she had lots of burdens in her life and uh, lots of responsibility from a very young age and um, and her way of, you know, zoning out a bit was just to have a few drinks. Yeah. So did you appreciate your parents more? Yeah, I probably did. I mean, I, I, I always really loved them and always had them on a pedestal. Um, and But I think I learned to have a lot more compassion for them. I had compassion and empathy that I didn't think I'd ever have before. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I kind of got them. And I, before I had that recognition, I'd... I'd drive all the way down there with white knuckles. I'd count all their drinks and I'd cry all the way home. Um, but then I learned to just see them for who they were. And, and I had five years with my parents before they died. They both died in their 60s. Both died directly as a result of their alcoholism, six months apart. I had five years with them of just them. Yeah. Not without all the drinking. I, I, yeah. It didn't matter, yeah. matter anymore, no, you know, no. what happened. And and I'm incredibly grateful for that. I, yeah. I absolutely owe that to Al-Anon and... and and my ability to just enjoy them for the people they were. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that you can have a relationship with an alcoholic who's still drinking. Yeah. They think, oh, they've got to stop before you can... And it's... No, they're just... They're, alcohol is a way that they can cope with life. Yeah. Um, we don't have that problem. No. no. And I understand how some people can't sit by and watch it. I absolutely get yeah. that. And, yeah. you know, um, one of the things I used to do when I used to go down and visit my parents, if I couldn't stand watching them anymore, I used to go and wash my car. Yeah. Where I lived in the city, it was really hard to wash my car, so I'd I'd go out and wash my car, and uh, this became a pretty common ritual for me, and it'd just give me an hour just with my own thoughts, and if I needed to, I could say I'm going to go visit a friend. We didn't have mobile phones then, um, and uh, and that was a way that I kind of coped with what was going on in the house. And funnily enough, my my dad a couple of years later at Christmas time, he never bought us presents. Mum was in charge of the presents. He'd never wrap a present in his life. And he sort of gave me the signal of, you know, come into the bedroom, I need to talk to you, which was usually the bank's calling or something bad's happened. And he handed me this present that was really badly wrapped. And he had a a name tag on it, To Helen Love Dad. And he'd even spelt my name wrong, which is pretty hard. (laughs) But H-E-L-L-E-N, I still have that tag. And in it was a car care kit, you know, all the the shampoo and the polish and stuff. And he recognised that, you know, washing my car was important to me. And I I couldn't believe it. It meant more to me than just the car care kit. But... Um, but yeah, so it's difficult to watch, but, um, uh, like I said, I had to respect their, their choices. And yeah. after my parents died, I found lots of, um, material that had been given to them. There was 12 step information. There was serenity prayers. There was all sorts of stuff in them. And so they chose not to, to have recovery and, and, yeah. and I had to, I had to respect that. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, some people can't or don't want to or can't. And that's, you know, that's for them. Yeah, yeah, my my dad had uh, had heart surgery at one stage, and um, he had to have his aorta replaced. And he was in hospital, and uh, the first day after his surgery, he was fine. And the second day, he was in a lot of pain. And I went to visit him, and uh, he was just absolutely writhing in pain. And I'd I'd been in Elnon long enough then to know that it was not my business when he drank or not. Mm. And uh, I went and had a chat to the nurses because uh, he'd sort of said I need some more pain medication. They said we've given him the maximum amount. Um, we don't quite understand what's going on. And, and one of the nurses said to me, does your dad drink? And I said, oh, well, here we go. So I said, well, it's not my business and I don't live at home anymore, but it's not unusual for him to drink this much whiskey and this much beer. And the nurse who was facing away from the desk faced the other way and said, thanks for letting us know. Yeah. And they started feeding him alcohol um, yeah. because he was going into detox. Yeah. And uh, they said, we'll talk to the specialist. And because they actually, that hospital had a rehab ward and see if we can get him in. So I went to visit him the next day, and uh, he was much happier. 
<laughs> beer in his hand, singing out to the nurse. Another beer, thanks, love. <laughs> um, and next to him was a brochure for the um, Robert Hall Ward. And um, I said to Dad, you know, what did the doctor say? And he said, I've got to give up fatty food. Yep. Um, and, uh, and I said, what's this brochure? And he said, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> and the doctor rang me and said, I've spoken to your dad. I can't get him in straight away, but I can yep. get him into another place, blah, blah, blah. But you need to know it's your dad's choice, not yours. Mm. So, you know, and that's, that's, yeah, you can lead a horse to water. But, um, yeah. and the conversations I had with my parents before they died, they weren't unhappy with their life. They wanted to keep drinking. Yeah, because um, it solves the problem. Yeah. Well, it was the only thing they knew. Yeah. It was their whole life was evolved around alcohol. They were at the at the local hotel every day. I used to catch the bus, get the bus home over a mile away from home because I'd get off at the pub and get a lift home with mum and dad. They were there every day. Mm. Um, you know, it was just it was just their life. So yeah. So what sort of things did you discover about yourself that once you got into Al-Anon? Oh wow, that was a big discovery. That one, I think it was like. Um, yeah, it was it was quite a, an awakening for me about the amount of decisions I'd made based on what other people wanted and how many of those were not what I wanted. I think I learnt that I had the right to be happy regardless of what was going on in the house. Um, I had a right to be happy no matter what anybody else was doing, um, that other people's decisions didn't have to affect me, that I could make my own decisions, um, that I deserved a, a good life. Yeah, it was a bit fun at one stage kind of working out what I liked and what I didn't like. It was scary at the same time, though. Um, I, I'm very thankful that I had a really good group of friends around me, um, and I developed some some amazing friends, some lifelong friends in Elanon who really understood and and went that journey with me. Yeah, um, because they did too, and that, and that's the other thing that um, that's unique about Elanon that on the outside we can all look so different, but we are no different inside. And and I can talk to an Elanon member about the craziest things, and they'll just nod and smile and say, "Yeah, I think that too." Um, so, yeah, so I think I, I'm still discovering about myself what I like and, and what I don't like, and, and that's okay. Yeah. And the thing that I find as well is that people in Al-Anon are closer to me than my family. Right. Because yeah. they know more about me. Yeah, it, it's a different family. Yeah. You know, I feel like I have two families. Yeah, You know, right. I'm very close to my family now, and, um, and there's still problems of alcoholism in my family, regardless of, you know, my parents have been long gone now, but... Um, there's still very significant problems of alcoholism in my family, but um, they know I come to Elanon. Uh, they respect that. Um, I can have a glass of wine at a function and then stop. I still sometimes choose to go to the functions early and leave early because yep. it gets a bit messy still. <laughs> uh, my brother's a bit too old to do the, the physical violence they used to do as youngest, but, um, you know, and some of my nieces and nephews are not heading in the right path either, but um, that's their business. And I can tell yep. them that I love them so much, and hopefully if they want help, they know where to go. Yeah. Um, but that's all I can do. Yep. Okay. Well, so we might take another quick break. Yeah, yeah. Right. Hi, Kerry Lee Harding here, and I want to invite you to the 2019 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday, the 14th of November, upstairs at Mesa on Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. This is the message that we send to the black, yellow, and red. I'm an Aborigine in our doorways, represent. There'll be a panel discussion on justice, Indigenous incarceration and the power of radio, along with music, food and, of course, free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday, the 14th of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6.30 to late 30. See you there. Music uplifted me, took away the pain and stress. I no longer have a barricaded chest. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR. 
on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking with Helen about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon. So Helen, we're sort of talking about coming to Al-Anon and talking about, um, I was going to ask you about your relationships, what what they were like before Al-Anon and what Mm. they're like now. Yeah, I think um, I think the the fact that I didn't really know who I was, and I thought that I had to do things that other people wanted me to do, um, influenced me into choosing relationships that I thought my parents would approve of. And and once in relationships, I think I was very subservient in terms of not thinking I really had any choice in the matter. Um, that uh, I didn't occupy fifty percent of the relationship; I only occupied a very small amount. Um, yeah, I think my my relationships were fairly dysfunctional. That um, I yeah I I basically became a bit of a doormat um, to people please. Uh, people pleasing was a very big part of my growing up. It was about keeping the peace no matter what. Yep. Uh, don't Good talk kid. about yeah. issues. Yeah. Don't talk about them outside. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Don't talk about the war and um, and just suck it up really. And if things aren't happy, then it's probably something you're doing wrong. So just try harder. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, that again only works for so long. Um, but you get a message about if things aren't right, then maybe it is you that's fundamentally wrong, and and somebody's chosen you, so maybe you should just stick it out. So um, yeah, so in my early um, adult life, I didn't, I didn't end relationships. They tended to end by themselves because I think I was too terrified to do that. Uh, and, you know, my parents, again, I know they loved each other dearly, but they didn't necessarily give the best example of functional relationships in terms of communication no, or... they couldn't. <laughs> no, they couldn't. That's exactly right. There's no blame there. No. Just if you're looking to them as the power of example, it wasn't a great one. No. Um, so, you know, they'd have arguments and things, but there was never much discussion. There was not much communication that happened. And, mm. um, you know, when my, my brother got really sick and, and died, nobody talked about it. You know, we didn't talk about it. It was just weird that we didn't talk about it. That my parents went on holidays. I got shipped off to my least favourite auntie. I uh, kept home from school for a week. I'm not sure why. And we didn't talk about it. No, for years, nobody ever talked about it after that. It wasn't like it just at the time. Yeah. So there was no communication. Um, there was no acceptance of emotion or uh, any focus on that sort of stuff. So you take those things out of a relationship, there's probably not too much that's going to keep it together. <laughs> so, so what's it like now? Oh, completely different. I think, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, a fully functioning, responsible adult who's responsible for every relationship I'm in, whether it be an intimate relationship, a work relationship, friends, um, that I have uh, 50% responsibility in that relationship, not 100 and not 10. Uh, I can voice my opinion in a way that, that's uh, not hurtful, that's not, um, uh, not um, demeaning to someone else. But I can also stand up for my own rights. Um, I can be compassionate. I can be caring and loving without thinking it has to come at a price. Um, I don't have conditional relationships anymore. I think most no. of my relationships growing up were conditional. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, you know, you'll be my best friend if I pay for things for you. Um, I'll do your homework and then you'll like me. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's just not like that anymore. And, and I deserve to be happy. I think that's the big thing that I recognize now. And, and, and I'm responsible for that happiness, not someone else. I think I look to other people to make me happy. I look to my parents to approve of me and make me happy. I looked at relationships to make me happy, but um, that's not the case now. I've got a, um, I've got a very loving, um, supportive, fabulous relationship now, and, uh, 
and I couldn't be any happier. Yeah, that's good. Um, so what about your brothers and sisters? Did any of them go to al No, No, uh, no. They, uh, none of my family have gone. Like I said, they know that I go to al um, or they sometimes say, are you still doing that AA thing? And I go, it's al <laughs> Yeah, 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 whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, none of them, as far as I know, have gone. Um, I've spoken to them about it. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, you you know, you learn not to push these things. Uh, I've taken my sister a few times to Alateen meetings. I used to go to uh, – it was a sponsor in Alateen, still am a sponsor in Alateen, but uh, was quite active a few years ago. I used to take her occasionally to an Alateen meeting, and even though she grew up in the same household as me and she listened to these kids' stories, at the end she'd say, oh, those poor kids. Yeah. I'd say, do you remember what happened? Oh, yes, oh, yes. But, you know, that was different. So she's not ready either. No. No. So, but, you yeah. know, that's the thing. I, I'm yeah. not a vigilante. I don't go running around telling everybody they should go to al although I think half the world should. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's about my life, and that's what al about. It's about – and I grew up – and my mum was a burnt chop woman, so you got last. So I always yeah. put everybody else first, and al teaches you to put yourself first, which was really uncomfortable for me, and it still can be. But I can't fix everybody else. It's the only thing I can do. I can only – influence my life i cannot control anything outside myself so mm. and i want to have a good life uh, it's not a selfish thing it's a self-preservation thing yeah. so what's your relationship like now with your family oh really good yeah really good yeah yeah, yeah. we we are uh, we are really quite close uh we have family functions we had one just recently um where all my family were there um i love them dearly and and they love me i know they do um i don't necessarily condone what they do but you know that's their life like yeah. they might not choose they don't approve necessarily of everything i do either that's no. okay um but uh no we have a fabulous life and, and i've learned again to understand that um they have choices about what they do um just because i love them doesn't mean that i support what they do but um yeah very close yeah so do you um do you still get distressed watching family members go through the alcoholism oh yeah yeah i do i've got a a niece at the moment who I'm a bit concerned about and, um, you know, she knows how I feel about it and I can still give her a hug and tell her that I love her. I don't, I don't no punishment or any of that kind of stuff. I don't give her a hard time about it. That doesn't fix mm. anything. Um, I want to be a power example for her that, you know, she can choose to have a good life if she wants to. Uh, but she's, you know, mid-twenties, having a great time and we all did that. But, um, yeah, I, I just worry that she, her behaviour changes quite a bit when she drinks, which is not a good sign, but... Uh, so yeah, so there's 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 definitely a, talk about a family tree. I used to joke about if you had a if yeah. I had a map of a family tree and I threw a dart at it, odds on I'd hit an alcoholic. Yeah, um, or des- or someone who desperately needs Ellen on. Yeah. So there's plenty of them there, but you know I can still love them no matter what. Yeah. Um, so did you did you hate the alcoholics? No, I don't think I ever hated my parents. Um, I didn't always understand them. Um, I used to get a bit frustrated by them, but. Uh, my parents had a, a very good sense of moral sort of standards. They uh, taught us very clearly about what was right and wrong. They had a great sense of community. Um, my we, we grew up with a religious kind of belief, which I gave up on um, in my late teens. I just decided too many bad things happened. But no, I didn't ever hate them. Like I said, I didn't understand them. I used to get very frustrated by them. Um, I used to feel quite angry at the situation um, and the choices that my parents made. Um, but I don't ever remember hating them. I think I just mm. adored them so much. But um, it was very frustrating at times, not understanding why they did the things they did. Yeah. So what 
what gave you the compassion? Um, well, I think that understanding the difference between an alcoholic and a and a, an alcoholism, I think, was was part of the issue. Was just understanding that they were people doing the best job they could. You know, I think about um, the childhood my mum had, and uh, and even my dad. My both my parents came from alcoholic families. That they didn't have much choice. They didn't really know any different, and they were doing the best job they could. They really did. And you know, four brothers, and you know, all that kind of craziness, and no money in the house, and all that kind of stuff. I think gave them lots of challenges. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I think I just saw them as people who were doing the best they could. And yes, we didn't get all the emotional, um, support that I would have necessarily liked, but we got lots of love in different ways. And, and we got taught about the importance of things like family and, and looking after one another and, um, and, you know, being a good community member. So I'm, you know, I'm very appreciative that I had that them as their, as role models for me. I think yeah, they, they did a really good. good job. Yeah. Uh, so what would you say to your younger self? Looking oh back. dear, I'd probably say chill out. Um, I'd say, I'd say, for a start, it's all going to be okay. I think I lived in so much fear as a kid that that really bad things were going to happen because lots of bad things didn't happen. But um, I think I'd say it's okay for you to have a good life um, because I felt so uh, connected in some way, responsible for my parents. I didn't think that I had any right to be happy. I had to fix them. Or that the two were dynamically connected. So I think, yeah, I think I'd probably just say you deserve happiness and you have the con- the ability to have happiness regardless of what your parents are doing. And and in, in Alateen, that's one of the things we talk to kids about, that regardless of what's going on in your household, you can be happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's hard to get your head around that when there's absolute chaos going on in the house. Yeah. And that's um, about hope, isn't it? It is about yeah. hope. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hope is a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, listen, we're just about at time. Um, talking of Alateen, um, w- there's three meetings in Melbourne at present. Uh, there's one in East Malvern on Monday night at 7.30. Uh, there's one at Fentrie Gully on Saturday at 8 p.m. And one in Frankston on Thursday at 7.30 p.m. And Alateen's for teenagers mm. whose parents or family members have problems with alcoholism um, to come and understand what what alcoholism is and how it affects the family and mm. what you can do yourself. Mm. Um, and it's got people like Helen mm-hmm. who are there to help people understand. Yeah. yeah. Anything yeah. else you'd like to say about Alateen? No, just I think, um, you know, there's lots of help online and all that kind of stuff, but there's nothing like being face-to-face with other people who understand what you're going through. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing like it. I don't, I don't, I've yet to find anything that really replaces that. So if, if you've got any kids who you think are affected by anybody's alcoholism, just take them along. Yep. It's free, you know, people there will you know, talk to you and I'm sure it'll help. Give you some information that might help. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's about all we've got time for. So um, if you want to contact Alan and Family Groups, you can do that by phone on 1300 252 666 or you can go online at alanon.org.au. Uh, so I'd like to thank Helen for coming in today and sharing her Alan and Family Groups recovery experience with us. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from gambling addiction and we'll be joined by Rebecca from Gamblers Anonymous. If you stay tuned now, you'll hear Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks again for listening to Living Free program today. And to take us out, we've got a song called Don't Explain by Kate Vigo.
I'm so completely 